2: This show may contain my tips for making money on Bitcoin. It won't. It also may contain explicit language, and it really might. It's Wednesday, February 6, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Do you remember the scene in Tootsie when Dustin Hoffman's character, as Dorothy, as Tootsie, as the woman, is told by Jessica Lange's character in confidence that it would be so refreshing if a man came up to her, dropped the pretense, and said, I want to go to bed with you. So then later in the movie, Dustin Hoffman, as Michael Dorsey, you know, the man character, meets Jessica Lange at a party and says, you know, I could give you a whole big line, but why not be honest? I just want to go to bed with you. And she throws a drink in his face. I was reminded of that with the news that Virginia's attorney general came out today as having gone in blackface when he was in college. And the reason I bring up that tootsie scene is I was on a couple programs over the last couple days where Governor Ralph Northam was criticized for asking for forgiveness or absolution after he'd been caught. I think I said it, you know, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be refreshing if someone would just ask for forgiveness before they'd been caught? Maybe we'd be more forgiving. Maybe it would be a good reflection on the person if you did that without being forced to do so. And that's exactly what Mark Herring did and splash or splat. It's unclear who in Virginia politics has standing to lead the state at this point. Ralph Northam had that disastrous press conference. Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax has been accused of sexual assault. And there's Mark Herring, who said that he used blackface at a party to dress as his rap hero, Curtis Blow. Curtis Blow, who introduced the world to run DMC, and there in the, in, in the 1980s. 84 hit, 8 million stories, there was Run DMC rapping this rhyme, right on time. She's more sinister than Peter Lorre, and this is just to 8 million stories. 8 million stories. She is more sinister than Peter Lorre, a reference to Peter Lorre. Blackface at a party being seen as a tribute. Man, it's like they say, different times, just crazy. Now, I would like to point out that just because one of the three highest-ranking officials in the state of Virginia is accused of sexual assault and the other two have admitted to blackface, it doesn't mean that the other two haven't also committed a sexual assault. I'm just throwing that out there in case it helps to clear up the situation in this chaotic commonwealth. Herring has yet to do a press conference. If he does, let's just hope that Pam Northam, the governor's wife, is there to help him, like she helped her husband, by saying inappropriate circumstances when a reporter asks Attorney General Herring to rap the Curtis Blow song, those are the breaks. Because these are indeed inappropriate circumstances, and these are also the breaks. On the show today, a so-to spiel, State of the Union. But first, he was an early Facebook advisor and investor who now looks at the social media giant and wonders what hath Zuck wrought. Roger McNamee, author of Zucked, up next. Roger McNamee was an early investor in Facebook who actually got the opportunity to make that investment because he impressed Mark Zuckerberg with a premonition. You, youngster, this is 2006 we're talking about, you're going to be offered a billion dollars for Facebook, he told Zuckerberg. Don't take it. Well, Yahoo did make the offer, and Zuckerberg did reject it, and the resulting investment in Facebook made McNamee millions of dollars. But it wasn't enough to give him sway, to pull Facebook back from its excesses. So now McNamee is out with a book about how our country is being zucked up. Hello, Roger. Good to meet you.
1: It's a great pleasure to be here.
2: So you were an investor back then in 2006, a potential investor? So the
1: way to think about this is I spent 34 years in Silicon Valley as an investor in tech and a true technology optimist. And when I met Mark, it was because somebody in his... Staff said, called me up. Somebody who barely knew me calls me up and says, My boss has an existential crisis Mm -hmm. and he needs to talk to somebody who's not conflicted and who will give him an honest answer. And so there was no thought of an investment at that time. And so, what I mean, let's face it, even two years in, it was really obvious that Facebook was going to be as good as Google was at that time. And I wanted to meet this 22 year old who was, you know, changing the world the thing with Zuck is it wasn't clear what his business model was going to be. So it wasn't obvious he was going to make a ton of money. Mm -hmm. But what I saw was that he did two things in those days that were really profoundly important. He required authenticated identity and he gave you actual control of your privacy. And those two things, if you look at all the failures in social media and all the failures of chat rooms and message boards and comment sections, it was that people could be anonymous. And when they're anonymous, they feel entitled to be antisocial yeah. and sometimes just troll. And Mark had that fixed. So if you will, I have a very minor role in the history of of Facebook, but I did two things that mattered, which was I helped him figure out how not to sell the company to Yahoo, and I just said to him, "Dude, you have this great dream. They all signed up for your dream. They're not allowed to tell you your dream is over." But it became clear that the people who had been helping him run the company at that time all wanted to sell it. And so that not, that's not culturally what you want. And right. so so it became important to get somebody to be a number two. And I had the idea of bringing in Cheryl Sandberg and I knew her really well. And so I uh, was a little bit like a midwife to that. And uh, I mean, it was obviously between the two of them, but I helped to get it started and kept moving it along. So I have those two data points. So I was immensely proud of my very little impact there. And I love the company, and I stopped being active when Cheryl came on board, and suddenly this is a real company. And, you know, my expertise is on things you do at the earliest stages, not, you know, not the operational stuff. So I backed off. I'm out of there in 2009. They don't figure out the current business model until 2011 to 2014. So I have, like, no idea how they're doing this. I'm just, you know, I'm just a cheerleader. And in 2016, I'm on vacation, and all of a sudden, I see the first of what turned out to be a series of situations where... Bad actors were using the advertising tools and essentially exploiting Facebook's business model to harm innocent people. So I write this op-ed for Recode, a technology blog on the West Coast. And instead of publishing it, I send it to Mark and Cheryl because they're my friends. And I think they're the victims. And so I'm going, guys... And what I should have done is I should have rewritten the whole thing as a memo. Mm -hmm. But in fairness, I didn't publish it. I just reached out to them. And I said, look, they've asked me to write this thing. This is what I've written. And it's it's in op-ed form. And they got back to me right away. And they go, hey, nothing to see here. But they did do a good thing, which was they turned me over to one of their chief lieutenants, a guy I knew really well and liked very much, and said, "Why don't the two of you work it out?" Well, nine days later the election happens, and we've talked a couple times in between. But after the election, I'm going, "Hang on, this is—I mean, this is a disaster." Yeah, you know, the Russians have used Facebook to tip the election, and and you know he's going hey we don't have a problem we're protected by the law that says we're not responsible for what third party is doing i'm going pal you're in a trust business you can't count on the law you have to protect the people who use your the, product the
2: executive of what's name Dan rose
1: dan rose Dan man.
2: rose is saying that he, he by he, the way he, just announced he left yeah he's yeah, a, a
1: he's a guy. really really good guy but i spent 3 months talking to dan trying to say look johnson and johnson faced this when some dude put poison bottles of tylenol in chicago and they're immediate reaction was to protect the customers of Tylenol. And it cost them something in the short run, but in the long run, it built all this goodwill. And I said, you can do the same thing and it'll be really valuable, but they weren't interested. And so I went, you know, I don't understand enough about this. So I spent six months trying to figure out what I'd seen. And I run into a guy named Tristan Harris who had been at Google and he'd just been on 60 Minutes talking about what he called brain hacking, which was a concept I was totally unaware of, which is essentially how you use computers. To create first habits and then addiction, because when people are coming back often enough and it's one-on-one relationship, yeah. you can give them their own Truman Show, right? right. You can totally control their news feed, so yes. everybody has their own facts and, using, and their own and use
2: the psychology that slot machine makers use exactly and dopamine it, spikes and exactly and whether by design and in fact by a little by design or just how it shook out. This is how Facebook is operated
1: and how Google is operated. Yes. Okay, and so so all of a sudden I'm going, oh my God, that's what happened in the election. He's going, oh my God, that's what happened in the election. Because we. I didn't know anything about his part and he didn't know anything about the election thing. So we put it together and that's when we decided to become activists. You know, We wind up um, at the Senate Intelligence Committee by a series of just serendipitous accidents. It was a beautiful thing. And it, it, the book tells you that story. And the key thing is in the book, I'm very sensitive to the fact that technology is full of jargon and BS. Yeah. So I spare people that. I've spent 34 years doing this so you don't have to. And the book is written from the perspective of the Jimmy Stewart character in Rear Window, <laughs> where I'm basically see something that looks like a crime scene and I pull the thread trying to understand it. So it
2: doesn't surprise me that Silicon Valley uh, is this place that maybe started with ideals. There is an idiom about what the road to hell is paved with. after all. <laughs> but I'm interested in your assessment of, you know, a, a number, number of things you said. So let's go back to some of the beginning. In the very beginning, what what enabled Zuckerberg to stave off that takeover deal is that he had controlling shares. Yes is that a double has that proved to be a double-edged sword. So it allowed him to soar in the beginning, but now it prevents sufficient checks on him. No one can ever vote him out of the CEO position of Facebook, or if they do, he could just fire the board.
1: I think it is a terrible thing for society to allow democracy to be defeated by clever tricks like that. Having control of people By people who don't have a majority of the stock, should just never be allowed. Mm -hmm. And I view it as a pure unadulterated negative whenever you see that. And in the case of Google and Facebook, it has essentially liberated the founders from any kind of accountability. I really believe that the decision in 1981 to essentially surrender all allocation of resources in our economy to the market... Mm -hmm is an experiment that we ran now for 38 years. And for the first 10, it worked great. For the next 10, it worked less well, but it still worked. Last 18 years, I think we can generally agree that the income inequality and the disruption to communities and employment that have resulted from this have been Unhealth, unhealthy. And if you sit there and look at things like education, journalism, things that are the the bulwarks of a good democracy, the things that provide the countervailing forces that, that keep everything in balance, those, those countervailing forces have been destroyed. And the biggest beneficiary of that laissez-faire model have been these internet platforms and the banks, right? right. And in both cases, you see predatory behavior that Candidly, they don't need to do. It's just that there's nothing stopping them. And if you sit there and say, my job is to maximize value to the shareholder, you're going to go for every advantage you can get, right? I mean, it's not again, it's not because they're bad people. The incentives are in the wrong place. And as long as the incentives are to maximize the stock price at every single moment, people are going to do bad things if there's no rules against it. So, do you
2: think that it's possible that Facebook loses popularity, not because of people of conscience deleting it, but just because it has these now toxic associations, it's become more cluttered with nonsense? You know, do you think that the market might speak and reject Facebook, or have they kind of dug in so much that that is not actually possible?
1: So, it, it all depends on whether they can continue to block startups. Mm-hmm. If they can keep startups from coming in, they're going to be around a long time. Because let's face it, for advertisers, they don't have a choice. Yeah. Facebook has the entire audience. They have the best target. I mean, if I want to sell a book called Zucked to people who use Facebook or people who use Instagram, where am I going to promote it? I got to promote it on Facebook and Instagram. I mean, you know, you're forced to be there as well, right? Yeah. Everybody has to be there because they've created a monopoly. And the question is, what should the limits on that be? That's the conversation I want to have on the economics. And as things stand right now, it's – there's – hold oldest- is huge, but there are two signs of extreme weakness. One is that uh, they no longer reveal how much people use the site every month. Yeah, But there's a proxy. Because and they also
2: have really inaccurate numbers about fake pages.
1: So Nielsen Nielsen does compile usage, right? And again, it's the Nielsen things are not perfect, but they give you a directional thing. And I think the numbers are down more than 20% mm-hmm. over, year over year.
2: America, right? In
1: the United States. Yeah, yeah. I think actually they measure maybe Canada and the U.S. together. Okay. But whatever it is people have changed their behavior. And that's really encouraging. But Facebook's changed this behavior too. I don't know about your news feed, but mine, I have an ad every f- uh, fourth, fifth, or sixth um, post is mm-hmm. an ad. That's at least twice the load of a year ago. And I think that in the long run, the, it was very important to them to spike the fourth quarter to make it appear like there were no problems. And. Given that it's an advertising business that was the fourth quarter, it's really pretty straightforward for them to do that. And by the way, I understand why they did that. But at the same time, we shouldn't be fooled. That's not a sign of health. The other thing that's going on, they're, they're no longer going to break out Facebook's platform stuff, the data, right? They're going to just report it integrated with uh, Instagram and WhatsApp. And they're doing that because Instagram's and WhatsApp are going like crazy, right. and Facebook is is not. The other piece of that, which is really worth paying attention to, is that a year ago, they told us that they blocked a billion inauthentic accounts. So when you're looking at the user number, you want to remember that, in theory, they're blocking a billion accounts. So they have the ability to maybe only block 900 million or a billion one, and yeah. they can modulate the The user number. And as you said, I think the inauthentic thing is that's a variable. I don't know what the percentage is, but I would be willing to bet anything. It's a lot higher today than it was five years ago.
2: So my last question is this. You liken yourself to the Jimmy Stewart character in Rear Window. You're observing all this. You're doing what you can. But what is your broken leg? What is stopping you or those who agree with you, who want to be Mm. there helping you along the way? What's getting in your way?
1: Well, you know, the inertial power of the neoliberal model that markets decide are the best deciders of everything. And, you know, we're at a moment in time where we're having a reappraisal of that philosophy. And obviously the beneficiaries of that philosophy have made so much money that they have the ability to have enormous power and they're not the least bit interested in changing their behavior. And you see this with some people who are either – running as independents for president of the United States or considering Iran, who seem to be of the view that there's something terribly wrong with taxing billionaires at a different rate than you would tax an hourly worker in a McDonald's. And I sit there and I go, hang on. We have been harvesting 60 years worth of infrastructure spending in the last 35 years We've not been investing in our education systems. We've not been investing in many of the things that really make life livable. I mean airports, air air traffic controllers, all these things. And now people are pushing back. We've seen labor actions from unions in the school systems around the country. We saw just that sick out in the air traffic control people during the shutdown. And those things are starting to gain traction. And they're, for the first time in call it 35 years, public sentiment is on the side of those walking out, even the people who are affected. Right. And to me, that's really meaningful, but I mean, <laughs> it's not just too early to declare victory. I mean, we're still trying to climb Mount Everest and we haven't even hit base camp yet. And I've written Zucked because I think that w- we have to recognize that if this model is allowed to persist in technology— that the next generation technologies are going to be so invasive that eventually you're going to hit a point where people no longer are able to you know really deliberate and run a democracy well and because of the inherently authoritarian models of these companies i don't like where that leads you and you know history says that if you get too much of the wealth in too few hands, you wind up in authoritarianism because the threat is pitchforks and torches from everybody else.
2: The name of the book is Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. The author is Roger McNamee. Thank you, Roger.
1: What a pleasure to be here. I've really enjoyed this, and thank you all.
2: Now the spiel. The State of the Union is hokey, contrived.
0: Called from a 10th grade essay? You have come from the rocky shores of Maine and the volcanic peaks of Hawaii, from the snowy woods of Wisconsin and the red deserts of Arizona. Wait, isn't that the line taken from the Simpsons episode
2: when Lisa competes in that essay contest all about America? Think Dong. The sounds
1: of the Liberty Bell. Ding, freedom. Don, opportunity. Ding, excellent schools. dong, quality hospitals.
2: Well, that kid in that episode was from Queens, as was
0: this guy. From the green farms of Kentucky and the golden beaches of California.
2: And might I say, the spirit of Massachusetts is the spirit of America. The spirit of the red, white, and blue. Oi, so cloying, so inaccurate— The the shout-outs to the former drug dealer who got released after studying the Bible.
0: Over the next two decades, he completed more than 30 Bible studies, became a law clerk, and mentored many of his fellow inmates. Completed more than 30
2: Bible studies. That's a lot of different Bibles to study. I mean, you got the King James, you got the Revised Standard, you got the New Living Translation. And of course, the different Bibles make a difference. For instance, in the New Century version, this is uh, Genesis 30, 43. In this way, Jacob became very rich. He had large flocks, many male and female servants, camels and donkeys. Where in the Jubilee 2000 version, and the man increased exceedingly and had many sheep and made slaves and men slaves And camels and asses just takes on a different sheen. But enough with the theology. Let's get to the military. Oh, that's not me talking. That was Donald Trump, who had the same use for a segue as he does for a vegetable. And
0: let us reaffirm a fundamental truth. All children, born and unborn, are made in the holy image of God, the final part of my agenda is to protect American security. Over the last two years, we have begun to fully rebuild the United States military. Sometimes
2: it helps to read the speech at home before you read it in front of Congress. What the hell kind of transition is that? To go from a zygote in the uterus to the shores of Tripoli? Hoo-ha! And not just hoo-ha, but all the hoo-ha And the hoopla, sometimes lost amid the hoopla was the hubbub. There were standing ovations that were basically forced when Trump just stopped talking and glared at the audience. There were numerous shouts of USA, USA. There was the singing of happy birthday. At one point, Nancy Pelosi clapped without bending at the elbows. And resistance-thirsty Twitter lost their minds. And you know what? It is all such nonsense. Of course it is. You know it is. But I want to dwell on how much it is. The State of the Union is like Major League Baseball's All-Star Game. Hear me out. Everything stops around it. It gets all the attention. But in point of fact, it actually means less than every other routine day around it. The State of the Union means less than the legislative day that occurred before it, than the legislative day that's occurring now. It's like those dreary 162-game-long baseball seasons. A legislative day in a sclerotic obstructionist Congress does not mean much, but it is more important than the supposed important thing. When I was a sports reporter, I would get assigned to do spots and updates during the newscast about the All-Star Game. And I guess I got assigned this because the editors said to themselves, oh, it's a notable day on the calendar. And the rest of the sport does stop for it. And it's supposed to confer glory upon the participants. And I guess at one point in our distant past, it was important. And it's a natural point to make an assessment. Also, the casual observer might think it's meaningful because the media pretends it's meaningful. Baseball All-Star Game, exactly like the State of the Union in all of those regards, here is how meaningless the state of the Union is, and not just in the trump era but in in all eras, but definitely especially in the trump era, the opposition they plan, they strategize, they unite, they uh, provide a visual and oral counterpoint, how they clap, how they glare, they make decisions about when they sit on their hands, which is most of the time and They will say, okay, we'll clap for women working. And of course, we'll have to clap to be nice to the shooting survivors or the little girl who has cancer, all that. Now, I'm not saying that it takes thousands of person hours to do all this planning, but it takes time. They think it's important. They think we notice it. But you know what? I bet if you asked every senator or every smart senator and every smart member of Congress, all right, here's the deal. You will not be allowed to do any of that planning And you will react just at an ad hoc basis as to the State of the Union. In fact, how about this? You can't react. You just have to sit there stone-faced. Or, or I will extend the hypothetical even further. Here's the deal. You will react how the Republicans want you to react in that moment. But in return, you get, during the course of the next legislative session, you get one senator and one member of Congress to change his or her vote once on one piece of legislation. You get to flip a Republican to a Democrat one time on one vote. Do you take that? Do you take one vote versus all this attention that goes into when to clap and how to look upset during the State of the Union? And you know what? I think they take it. I think they'd rather have the vote. It could be getting a bill out of committee or it could be something big like a judicial confirmation. I bet they would change all the fodderall and foofa for just one vote, such is the threadbare nature of that sorry bit of theater, we are told, is so very, very important. Let me leave you with one last call to come together, followed by a quote from today's New York Times. I think the juxtaposition of these two sentiments really puts everything in perspective. Here now, President Donald Trump from the speech.
0: There is a new opportunity in American politics if only we have the courage together to seize it. Yeah. <clears throat> Victory is not winning for our party. Victory is winning for our country.
2: And here is the quote. It is from the New York Times, writing about a pre- State of the Union lunch, quote, Trump dismissed former Vice President Joseph R. Biden Jr. as dumb and called Senator Chuck Schumer of New York a nasty son of a bitch. The White House declined to comment on the president's remarks. Except to say... And that's it for today's show. Pierre BNMA and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They know there could be no legislation within an investigation, but they long to quaff a libation in the name of hydration. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcast, suspects the ovation, occasioned by Trump's oration, were feats of prestidigitation. The, the gist. Whether we have legislation or an investigation, we're sure to get more detestation of Hondurans seeking a change in location because caravan denigration and claims of infestation are central to the obfuscation in that evocation. Oopru, depru, Peru, and thanks for listening.